This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Well, welcome everyone to Trek FM's dedicated books and comic show. My goodness, episode 140. I can't believe we're only 10 away from 150 and and I am so excited as always to have with me my illustrious host, Dan Gunther. Hey, Matthew. Yeah, 140. That's uh I was just looking at that on our on our show notes here and it's it really is hard to believe that you know, we've gotten here so quickly and, uh, you know, we're almost halfway to 300 is kind of how I think about it. <laughs> Whoa, goodness. Uh, <laughs> hold your horses there, buddy. Uh, good. Yeah, it is. I mean, I don't know. It, it's it's crazy to think that it's we've come this far on Literary Treks. And, and, you know, when I think about back, you know, the early shows and just all the shows we have done, What's insane is that we barely scratched the surface of Star Trek books and comics. There's just so much else out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this really could be a full-time job just doing this podcast alone. Uh, and, you know, reading the books. And especially if you wanted to do, you know, a real conservative effort to really get through the, you know, the canon of Star Trek books. It's just... It would be incredible, but I would have to be supported and people would have to actually just pay me because there's no way. I'm just going to put it out there right now, like dream job right there. (laughs) That would be great. Yeah, that's right. Dan and I, if if you want to pay us to (laughs) review more Star Trek books, basically uh, we need, uh, let's see, we probably need, uh, you know, six thousand dollars a month for uh, you know five six thousand dollars a month we can split between each other so we can have living expenses so make that happen people and we'll make the show happen we promise that sounds fair i think i think that's fair wait wait yeah sorry five or six thousand u.s yes i'm on board (laughs) (laughs) well uh but that's so that we can split it each month so it's don't get too excited (laughs) that's true it goes a long way in canada but (laughs) oh man well we have uh, some great news for everybody because the news is is that we're going to get to actually finish up 
the Reunion comic, uh, the Star Trek uh, ongoing series did part one of Reunion starring the Orions and, of course, Gaia and her brother getting stolen away. And um, we are going to be wrapping up that comic today as we talk about ongoing number 54. And so, Dan, uh, you know, we wrap up this story and I, I think we... We're going to talk about the story probably a little bit in depth. So if you haven't read the issue, uh, you know maybe you might want to skip this part, but I don't want to feel like we have to stifle the conversation here with this one. Um, what did you end up thinking about uh, the end of this series? Because we were both so involved with issue one. I mean, we were, I, 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 we were loving mm-hmm. the story. Yeah, no, it was a really, really strong start to this story. And I really enjoyed that. Uh, part two here, I think, continues a lot of what I really liked about that story. Uh, you know, I really got into this. I really started to love these characters and the work that it, that was done with them in this issue. Uh, one thing you and I talked a little bit about on the other side of the page, and I think we kind of agreed with, is it seems to wrap up rather quickly. Uh, you know, this could have been a good three-parter story, I think. Now, I kind of... Uh, lucked out a little bit because you know sometimes I gloss over these things but this time I really noticed on the front of the cover that it said part two of two so you know I was expecting that ending to be coming um but yeah so it it really felt like there could have been more story there but what we did get I really did enjoy uh I love the characters I love the artwork and I love that the kind of final solution to the story is very much in keeping with Kirk's character. I think they did a lot of good work there. Uh, how about you? How did you feel about that? Well, I do agree that the the solution does feel very Kirk. Uh, and what I do like, too, is that this is Kirk caring about his crew still. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you really feel that uh, in darkness Kirk coming out, you know, uh, where he was pleading with Marcus about, you know, uh, they were just following my orders. You know, you can do whatever you want with me. Just, you know, have them be safe. And this is that same Kirk. I really like that. It's, it's He's really shining through here. The thing that I felt like was sad that this wasn't, uh, you know, a part two of three is that I feel like this whole thing with the Orions and their mother you you could have really expanded that. Mm-hmm. And if you had expanded that, you would have really been able to get in depth. How is she a part of the Orion Syndicate? Is she not part of the Syndicate? You know, is she on her own? Um, what was her, you know, because she talks about, you know, being kind of in league a little bit with Marcus, Admiral Marcus. Uh, how did that all work out? And then why exactly is she promised her daughter to this insectoid race Mm -hmm. and all of those things i feel like could have been explored a little more in depth if this issue had basically just been them on the planet and then the escape was at the very end and then the third issue could be all about kirk and the crew having to make the decision to get to them in time right um you know i just i feel like there's so much more there and uh, the the Ryans are really you know rife for the the taking here with with storytelling possibilities because this is really the first time we've seen them, other than Gaia being in her underwear in Star Trek, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think, do we even glimpse her at all in Star Trek Into Darkness? I don't think we do. I don't think she's in it at all. No. Yeah. So 
I, I do like that in the end, uh, she is wanting to transfer to the Enterprise, <laughs> and Jim's like, transfer? <laughs> yeah, that was a nice little uh, coda to end it on there. I thought that was really good. It's also interesting to note that uh, Orions uh, apparently battle each other naked in Coliseums, basically, so mm-hmm. good to know. Yeah, definitely some eye candy for uh, a lot of different viewer, uh, readers on this one. So, you know, we got to see a lot of Gala in uh, the Star Trek film, and we get to see a lot of her brother in this comic. So, yep. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. Uh, what is worse than being, you know, betrothed to an insectoid who still finds you attractive? I mean, I, I that just had my skin crawling. Oh, it yeah. was gross. Yeah, that was that was pretty disturbing, you know, when he kind of caresses her face with that mandible, I guess, of his or, or the, the whatever you'd call the limb <laughs> of that big bug. <laughs> yeah, it was it was awful. It, just imagine a gigantic fly caressing your face. Ugh. That's what's happening in this episode <laughs> or this issue. So, yeah, I. What did you think, too, about this planet here where it basically looks like the Pandora planet with these floating continents? Yeah, that was kind of an interesting choice. Uh, You know, when I first saw that, I thought, oh, that's kind of, you know, weird just to kind of throw it in there. But then it actually kind of comes into play when the Enterprise comes to rescue them. And, you know, they're having to fight the what did they call it? The odd gravity on the planet Uh, and, you know, really kind of make that a an actual plot point I thought was kind of interesting, you know, something we haven't seen in Star Trek. So, uh, you know, probably not a lot of good science behind it, but uh, it looks cool. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Uh, you know, there there can't be any real good science behind this as Star Trek tries to do. Mm-hmm. But you know what? That's one of those things. It's like at some point it's Star Trek is more about the storytelling and I think in the end, kind of the more morality play-ishness to it mm-hmm. and just telling a good yarn, then it should be to to being slave to this idea of we, we have to be so scientifically correct all the time. You know, it doesn't matter, you know, if it's, because like you said, this is really visually interesting. Mm-hmm. So that's that to me, especially in this comic, that's what makes it enjoyable to read is when you hit a page like that and you're like, whoa. That's cool. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's that's okay. Um so I I didn't really have an issue with it, but I I wondered how many Star Trek fans would would get to that page and be like, "Oh, well this is just utterly ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> you can't do this. This doesn't make sense in any form of science that we know." Well, I neither does flying in a starship and mm-hmm. talking to green people and insectoid people. So, yeah. you know, at least as far as we know right now. <laughs> I'm wondering if these were the uh, the JJ Universe version of the Zindi insectoids. Now that I oh, think about it, that I, I you know I actually kind of wondered that, and um, you know I don't recall that they are really named. Mm-hmm. I think just the family or something like that mm-hmm. is named. Yeah, but yeah. We don't know what their species is called. So right now, in so, my head, uh, there's Zindi. <laughs> yeah, that uh, honestly, in my head, Canaan too. That's exactly what they are. So. I really liked the end of Ahura, Kai, and Gala just in their rec room uh, having a drink and, you know, the captain walks in and, you know, they have a really nice 
uh, moment there, you know, after everything that her and Kirk have been through, it was nice to see them uh, at a different place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it was great. I, I'd love to see her on the Enterprise in the comic series more often. So, you know, in the end, I, yes, this, this should have been, I think, three parts. I would have loved to have seen it uh, more fleshed out. But all in all, this is, to me, a, a a good strong arc mm-hmm. and i'm really glad that they did it yeah i agree completely it was you know a really interesting place to take the story kind of featuring minor characters as opposed to the the main six or seven crew members so yeah i thought it was a really cool place to take the story and you know i gotta say i kind of want to see more of this lounge it looks like a more happening place than 10 forward ever was so uh yeah i kind of want to see more of that place <laughs> Well, and, and, you know, it was making me think, you know, the idea of recurring characters, you know, that's one of the things that you can do in a comic as well. And they already have some recurring characters like Zara, the mm-hmm. security person and things like that. I would really like to see more of these characters in this universe on the ship since they're on the five-year mission. You know, it would mm-hmm. make sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, if these characters were interacting with more people in the ship because they don't have anybody else to interact with, mm-hmm. you know. Um, they run into this other Starfleet ship in in this series here in this duology, but, um, you know, it, it, it's not even about that. It, having some of these more familiar characters that create good kind of side characters for us to look at, it just reminds me of, you know, uh, what made something like these Phase 9 so enjoyable as a series to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So before we head into the feature, I want to talk a little bit about where you can find us online. Uh, Literary Treks, as you know, is just one of the many podcasts here on Trek FM. We have shows covering all corners of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, for example, iTunes. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit that subscribe button. And if you're feeling generous, please leave us a star rating and a review. This really helps us in the search results on iTunes and makes it possible for more Star Trek book fans to find us. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link there as well. Now if you want to get into contact with us, we have a form on our website at trek.fm contact. You can leave us a voicemail there as well. Just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com trekfm. We're also on Twitter. Our username there is at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. We also have the Babel Conference, our listeners-only group on Facebook. Just type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at trek.fm and click Discussion on the menu bar. Now, Literary Treks also has a group on Goodreads. Uh, You can find us there where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as what we're currently reading, so you know what's coming up for future shows. And of course, there are always great conversations happening there about all the books and comics that make up the Star Trek universe. Well, Dan, uh, I love when we get the opportunity to talk about the latest e-novella that has come out. And this latest book is Miasma by Greg Cox. And I'm so excited to be able to, to talk about this with you today. I just I love the, the e-novella format because I can sit down and in about an hour and a half, usually two hours, I can read an entire story. And I just love that. And 
one of the things we were just kind of talking about before uh, we were recording the show on the other side of the page was this idea, you know, each time you pick up one of these, it feels like an episode. It it really does if the author has done it well. And, and this one was so cool because as we've been getting recently with Greg Cox, this is in that movie era between five and six, which is so much fun to get like an episode style feel from that time period. Like, mm-hmm. how cool is that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, visually to me, this is one of my favorite eras of Star Trek. You know, those monster maroon coats they're wearing and they're just absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, I've a lot of people talked about wanting to get a Captain Sulu Star Trek series. And one of the big reasons for me that that would be so great is to see this era played out visually on a regular basis. And so, yeah, this book, uh, this e-novella was just like watching an episode, like you said. So it's like we got a little glimpse into what a weekly series set in that time time period would look like. And uh, yeah, it's just great. Um, You know, we get a lot of the classic Star Trek situations that we didn't really get a lot of in the films, because of course, you've only got a couple hours, you've got to get through, you know, major plot and that kind of thing. Whereas a weekly television series, you can kind of get more in depth and get more into these situations. And here it's just like one of those episodes. I felt like watch we were watching a 45 minute episode start to finish and absolutely loved it. Well, not only does it feel like an episode, Dan, but it it almost felt like a crossover with star Wars. Cause I felt like that they had landed in Yoda's swamp. <laughs> uh, because that's exactly what this planet feels like. Is Dagobah. <laughs> I have to say, I'm really glad those leech things weren't in uh Yoda's swamp because I think uh, I feel like Luke's training would have been a lot shorter if one of those things jumped out at him. Well, I'm are are we sure that like thing that was in the water that swallowed R two D two isn't related to these leeches? Because <laughs> goodness, uh, man, this this place it just it it felt awful, and it you could the way that that Greg uh, did such a good job of explaining this. Um, it did kind of feel like that old TOS planet of the week, mm-hmm. but like the planet from hell. I mean, this is not the planet that you want to land in. And I was thinking to myself, of all the times to be in the Monster Maroon and land on a planet that has this much humidity and moisture <laughs> in the air, why aren't they wearing... Like, I, I was really hoping that Greg was going to kind of create something or maybe even use the fatigues that they had from uh star trek five mm-hmm. that would make a little bit more sense if you were going on an uncharted planet uh to go exploring in instead of those big heavy uniform coats and everything that you have yeah those just don't make sense <laughs> to go exploring in you know or even like in Star Trek Two, where they have those you know those jackets. jackets, yeah, yeah, exactly. That that feels like what you should be wearing if you're going to an unknown planet, not that monster maroon. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I have to admit, when I first started reading this, I kind of you know in my mind's eye was picturing those uh, fatigues from Star Trek Five because that just yeah that makes way more sense to me for sure. <laughs> Well, one of the things too, uh, what did you end up thinking of the setting? You know, uh, the the whole storyline is about you know Kirk is supposed to have these diplomats. They're they're ferrying diplomats that apparently they've turned into the Enterprise D, <laughs> and on the way they get a distress call from a planet, 
and they decide that they can make the detour and go check it out. Mm-hmm. And Spock and McCoy and this landing party get struck down from their shuttlecraft on the way down because of something weird in the atmosphere. And they are just stuck on this planet, and things go from bad to worse. So kind of, what did you think about this setup as a storyline for basically, you know, an episode of, of TOS here in the movie era? Mm-hmm. Um, I Well, first of all, I have to say I really liked uh, the setting, like the way it was described and the kind of general feeling that was uh, kind of evoked in the crew as they were setting out on this planet with, you know, the horrible dangers they faced. Uh, I felt, you know, Greg did a really, really good job of creating that mood and creating that atmosphere. Um, I have to admit, by the end of the story, I was a little bit disappointed that nothing was really done with the whole diplomat angle of the story. Like it just kind of, it, it seems to be like there's a little bit of pressure there from them, but then it just kind of is dropped and isn't really dealt with. Um, so, you know, I felt like maybe that was a little bit of a wasted opportunity there, but at the same time, I really like, you know, kind of the setup of the story and how it's carried through here with, uh, you know, Spock and this team of, of bones and a bunch of red shirts trying to survive on the, on the planet here. Although I guess I have to say they're all red shirts at this point in history, aren't they? That is true. They are all wearing a uh you know a red jacket um they might have a red turtleneck underneath but really the color's all the same on the outside so no i'm with you it was interesting i guess maybe you know once scotty had opened up his special stores of of booze uh it it made all of the um diplomats happy you know uh they're probably going off doing who knows what on the enterprise (laughs) you know that makes sense yeah you know um, probably, you know, stole some of, uh, McCoy's Romulan ale. So, For but, medicinal um, purposes no, I, only, of course. Exactly. <laughs> medicinal purposes only. Uh, you know, <clears throat> yes. Getting diplomats off Kirk's back. That's a medicinal purpose. <laughs> um, but no, you're right. It, it was that part of the story does fade away. And really the, the whole crux of the, the issue is just getting these crew members off and, you know, I do have to say, you know, one of Star Trek's weaknesses, though, is is doing a, a story like this where you have these characters you've never met before, and you're like, oh, well, they're going to be the ones that die, <laughs> you know, and that's exactly what happens yeah. on this landing party. So, uh, but other than that, it, it was nice to have a story where it was Spock and McCoy. You know, they're with Chekhov, but it, it, it's really the Spock and McCoy uh, dynamic that really gets explored um, you know, we don't spend, I feel like a ton of time in stories where it's just those two. Mm-hmm. And I'm really, I always like when they kind of split up the Trinity in ways that aren't the ones you normally think of, you know? Um, and most of the time it's either McCoy and Kirk that don't get split off as much by themselves. And you don't really, I mean, unless Kirk's there, it's not usually just Spock and McCoy. So I liked that and I felt like it gave some nice growth especially when you're thinking about the idea of Spock and mm-hmm. Kirk and McCoy realizing 
just how far Spock has really come and how much he's changed and how much even he's changed, you know, McCoy himself in relation to Spock. I just, that was really fun about the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really liked, like, for example, it's actually brought up in the course of the story how, you know, this is kind of reminding McCoy of uh, the episode The Galileo 7, where they're yes, in yes. a very similar situation. They've crashed in the shuttlecraft. They're being um, uh, kind of attacked by the native life forms there. And, you know, Spock approaches everything uh, completely logically, and McCoy approaches everything completely passionately <laughs> because that's their characters. And, uh, yeah, in this story, we really see that, uh, and, and you're very right to make that point, both of them have really evolved... Uh, to take the other person's position into account. And uh, Spock has really learned to make allowances for, uh, you know, what he previously would have thought of as human failings, uh, like compassion and the need for uh, security and, and, and a feeling of, uh, of, of safety and, and um, kind of catering to that human need for... Um, taking one's feelings into account, you know? So he does things like say that we should bury this uh, crew member and give him the proper respect he deserves rather than doing what he did in Galileo seven and, and saying, you know, the completely logical thing is, you know, it's just a body, it's dead weight. We should leave it behind and see to our own safety. Well, and it seems like too, what's nice about this storyline is that it's picking up uh, all that's happened in the TOS movie era and uh, really going with the continuity and the whole idea of, you know, uh, Spock having been, his Katra been inside McCoy. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's not, not really something, I, I don't recall anywhere that it really talking about that that having an effect on who Spock becomes. Mm -hmm. But it's almost in some ways as if Spock having shared part of McCoy and McCoy sharing part of Spock in that way makes them more like the other. Hmm, yeah. But I think maybe, and this is where I, I, I challenge to any of the book writers, give us a story about that right after Star Trek four, where Spock and McCoy showing that growth and, and maybe them realizing that, that they have become more like the other because they've been in, you know, give us a grand adventure with Spock and, you know, McCoy uh, with that. I think that would be fantastic mm -hmm. because that to me is is the thing that um, I saw playing out here just a little bit, but the, it's never directly mentioned but it it makes the most sense to me mm -hmm. yeah and i feel like there's a lot of room there like there's a lot of uh potential for some really interesting stories to come out of that for sure um <laughs> the one thing i really liked was uh, uh mccoy basically telling spock like i'm not taking your katra if you die here damn it yeah <laughs> 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 I thought that was great. Like just those little continuity nods, you know, to things like that, that have, have really been huge events in the lives of these, well, and the deaths of these characters. Um, you know, it's, it's, it makes a lot of sense that they would be things that would have a lot of repercussions going through, um, you know, in the, in the rest of their lives. So uh, similarly, a really interesting thing I thought was using that connection between Spock and Savick 
that was established in Star Trek Three when uh, Spock was going through Ponfar on the Genesis planet, and uh, Savick had to help him in you know the way that she was able to help him, and thereby forging this connection that you know there's there's a lot of books that deal with Savick's later life that I haven't read, so I don't know if maybe that's explored more in them, but. You know, it's something I've never really seen before is this idea of this deeper connection having been formed between Spock and Savick. I thought that was a really, really cool angle uh, to take the story here. It is something I feel like there are some other books uh, down the line. I can't remember the names like Vulcan Hearts mm-hmm. and like Spock and Savick have gotten married. Oh, okay. And yeah. I think that connection and the idea comes from, you know, what happened on the Genesis planet of you know, Vulcans needing to mate every seven years. And obviously that would have happened uh, for Spock as that character. You know, he wasn't completely Spock at that point because he didn't have his Katra, but it still gave them a connection that happens between two Vulcans when they come together. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've always really appreciated the way Vulcans have uh, dealt with uh, their sexuality in that way. Of uh, that is, It is something that is a, a, a more binding thing. You know, it, it, they don't just see it as being a physical act. You know, it's mm-hmm. a spiritual act for them as well, which honestly it is for us humans too. I mm-hmm. mean, you bind yourself with another person in that way. You do have a connection with them. Even if they're a stranger, you do feel a a connection with them it's it's biological it's physical but it also has a spiritual component as well and so they play with that here greg really plays with that whole idea and brings it in a really interesting direction and you know i think for me opens up the door to understand why spock and savik um could have maybe actually pursued a relationship down the line you know, Vulcans live a long time, so it isn't not like they had to do it now. Yeah. But you could really see that their relationship went way beyond mentor. And men- there, that wasn't it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's still respect there and all that, but there's something else that's way beyond anything like that because of what they experienced on the Genesis planet. And kudos to Greg for actually using that as a way of saving everybody (laughs) (laughs) you know it's a really i and i never really thought about this before but the whole thing between spock and savik is really interesting to me because you know he was her mentor before but then basically in star trek 3 the roles were completely reversed where spock is you know kind of you know newly reborn and completely bewildered and and not knowing anything and Savick really has to become the mentor for him and uh you know help him in the way she did there i i never really thought about that before but that really lends an interesting dynamic to their relationship that they've both kind of held that position of having to guide the other through you know some formative things in their lives that's that's really cool i never thought of that before well, and, and that's one of the things that's uh, nice because it, it takes that away, you know, that whole, like, he's her mentor mm-hmm. because she's been his mentor, you know, and they've both been at their most vulnerable in some ways with each other. Yeah. And I think that has forged a, a, just a 
bunch of trust that you you know you can't get any other way than by some odd circumstance like this yeah <laughs> um and so I, yeah i think it really really worked and you know it was it was nice to see that continuation of using savic um it is kind of strange because obviously it's weird to all of a sudden get to star trek 6 and then be valeris and then the book savic is here um I know we're using the continuity from the DC comics, mm. but it it's still a little bit odd because it's like, but what 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 happened to Sa- Savic? Like where did where did she go? So I don't know. It's it's just kind of odd all of a sudden that Spock has a new, you know, pupil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do have to say I'm really glad in Star Trek Six they didn't do what they were originally thinking of doing, which was having Savic be in that role because you know i really like savik i didn't want her to be a traitor (laughs) so but yeah it does create some really uh some odd continuity issues you know when you combine it with uh what they're doing over in the dc universe and yeah what we see in this book here you know i'll i'll say that i think that with star trek 6 that could have made star trek 6 better and the reason is just because you wouldn't have automatically assumed that the traitor on the Enterprise is the new person. Because mm-hmm. if you if it, if it's Savic, you don't think there's a way that that can happen. But see, then the storyline you can bring up is the fact that, you know, Savic is half Vulcan and half Romulan. And therefore, you could use that Romulan connection along with the Romulan ambassador there to, to really deepen the storyline in Star Trek VI and make that just more insidious mm-hmm. and scary that if somebody like Savit can turn, you know, I mean, and that's kind of the point with having Kirk at the beginning and let them die. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> that's the whole point is that even, even your hero, it can, you can come so close to being the villain if, if we're not constantly vigilant in that way. And I think, um, Savit could have just driven that home even more. And too, think of the shock mm. for star trek fans i mean it would have just been mind-blowing so i it, it's yeah. it's either it, it's not gonna it's not like it's gonna change yeah. so i have to admit not gonna my go reasoning is completely selfish because i just yeah. really like the character but yeah oh, from a I dramatic do too. point of view that would have been incredible yes and i do too i love the character and i i i just i can imagine it being um heart-wrenching but in the best way dramatically. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the the movie is interesting because it, it, it has this whole idea of logic versus compassion or compassion for logical reasons. And, you know, Spock literally giving up his lifeblood to save his friends. Uh, who knew that Spock was a messiah figure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was definitely being played out a lot here for sure (laughs) um i thought i thought this was really interesting because you know kind of like in the galileo 7 every decision spock's making here is very logical you know when they realize that his blood has this effect on the creatures that are attacking them uh of of repelling them basically he's got you know leech repellent flowing through his veins so he says, start filling hyposprays. You know, we need to use these to protect the crew. But, you know, at the same time, it really feels like there's just kind of a twinge of compassion there. And um, 
you know, even though what he's doing is completely logical, it really feels like, you know, he really is making compassionate choices here in order to kind of take this route of self-sacrifice. And I mean, you know, of course, self-sacrifice is very in character for him. I mean, you know, see Star Trek two, you know, he gives his life to save the enterprise. Um, but yeah, there's there's definitely this feeling of compassion that we didn't really see in Spock's earlier days. Uh, and I think you really feel that in the scenes between Spock and McCoy, kind of what we were talking about before. There's this real sense of camaraderie and respect and, you know, brotherly love between them there, which I thought was a really interesting place to take Spock's character. Well, I think it's one of the things that is uh, so great about the way that the character of Spock grows in the films. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, in, in the TNG universe, Data is their Spock. And yet, if you look, especially once they got to the films, Data's character becomes, I hate to say like a parody of himself, but he's kind of a parody of mm -hmm. himself. Whereas... When you look at the TNG films, Spock's character and all the characters, uh, but Spock specifically really matures so that you get to that point in Star Trek VI where he says, you know, logic, logic is only the beginning of wisdom. This idea that Spock understands that there is something more transcendent than logic mm -hmm. and that logic is only one of the building blocks of a fully realized life and I, I think that this is where the whole idea of Spock and McCoy having shared a part of each other and they came away with some of the best parts. And, mm -hmm. you know, the way in which Spock was reacting and even thinking in his mind uh, here, yes, he had logical reasons, but I think you're exactly right. I think there is a twinge of almost human-like compassion that was that was happening in Spock that was beyond just the logic. Yeah, he's doing the logical thing. But there it it Greg writes it in a way that it does feel like something greater. Mm -hmm. And that really speaks to the growth that we're getting in Spock in the movie era. And I really, really like it because he's such a much better character. And all of them really are better characters than the movie era because of where Nicholas Meyer put them in Star Trek II, mm -hmm. really made them human, really pushed them forward, and the best of the, the TOS films do the same. And, you know, I, I think um, that's why, for me, six is my favorite, uh, and then two next. Um, and then I actually really like the, the motion picture as well, and, you know, you you have all of those films together and you've got a lot of growth happening between the characters. I think that's really great. You know, one thing in the TOS movies, it really feels like we get the elder statesman era of these characters. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and it, it, it really, you know, I love those stories. I, I love the stories where characters bring experience and maturity and growth to uh, the situations they find themselves in, whereas, you know, in their youth, they might have been more brash, might have been more uh, flying by the seat of their pants. Uh, I feel like in the TOS movie era, they really have reached this place of maturity and thoughtfulness. And uh, yeah, 
with Spock that's really coming to terms with his human half and integrating that into his life and, you know, really becoming who he is, you know, a half Vulcan, half human, as opposed to someone who's striving to just be Vulcan. Um, so I thought that was a, a really, you know, nice extension of his character. And, and it really rang true. All of these characters felt real to where they were supposed to be in their, uh, in their, in their life here, basically. Well, in a lot of ways, I think the same thing happens to War from Deep Space Nine. And, and Chris and I have talked about this on the orb quite frequently is the idea that Spock and Worf both become comfortable with being who they are, which is unique. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he is a Klingon raised by humans. So he's not really Klingon, and yet he is Klingon at the same time. Mm-hmm. That makes him unique. The same thing with Spock. He's part human. He's part Vulcan. He is unique. And who he is is Spock. Just the way who Worf is is Worf. No more and no less. And becoming comfortable with that, that kind of dichotomy that they both had to live with, is that that embracing that is is what really set them free mm-hmm. to be who, full, who who they fully were. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think for Spock, that really happens in the TOS movie era. And, of course, on Deep Space Nine, that happens, I think, for Worf uh, when he comes to Deep Space Nine and especially once he meets Martok. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, all in all, I, I think it just creates for uh, a great storytelling when characters actually grow. And the fact that, uh, you know, an e-novella can give us just a little bit of a piece of Spock in this way and McCoy... I think is incredible. So what do you think you'd end up rating my asthma? Well, I have to say I really enjoyed it. I don't think it was, you know, entirely groundbreaking or incredible, uh, but it was definitely a very, very solid story. And I do have to say Greg Cox is really great at writing uh, really interesting scenes and really great settings. Um, I was actually in the middle of reading The Shining uh, for my book club, uh, before I had to kind of put that on hold and, and read this one for the for the show tonight. And I was thinking like, oh, okay, I've been I've been getting freaked out and scared by what's going on in The Shining, so I'll be able to put that down and read a, you know, a nice happy Star Trek novella and take a break from that. And then we get these hideous leech creatures that suck all of your organs yeah. up. And I'm I'm just as freaked out from what's going on in this book sometimes as I am with what's in The Shining. So you know, it really wasn't a break from tense, scary uh, books here. But um, I do have to say I really enjoyed it. Uh, like I said, not maybe groundbreaking or uh, incredible, but but very, very solid. And I would have to give it probably f- a solid four out of five uh, fully loaded leech repellent hyposprays. Oh, man. Goodness. <laughs> um yeah, you're right. This this book, it, there's not anything groundbreaking in it, but it's such an enjoyable read, and it feels so much like an episode. Um, and uh, for me, I, I think it's uh, three and a half out of five downed shuttlecrafts in Yoda's swamp. Oh, very nice. <laughs> well, Matthew, it was a lot of fun talking about miasma. Uh, you know, it's kind of fun to get these uh, short, quick e-novellas and, and really kind of recapture that uh, Star Trek television episode feel. Dan, I, I couldn't agree with more. 
And um, I think one of the things that I love too is just the time period. I love that we're mm-hmm. getting these stories in this movie era and I hope that it continues. And it looks like hopefully it will as we move down down the line. Uh, you know, Greg Cox seems to be having a great time writing in this era and I hope they don't uh, make him stop because uh, this is... To me, this is much better than getting another five-year mission TOS story where it feels like every second of those years are accounted for. And and here, (laughs) it feels more wide open. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as the Dixie's Chicks would stay, there's wide open spaces. So let's keep filling them. And uh, really, (laughs) really appreciate the fact that we get to do this each week because of our associate producers through Patreon. Ken Tripp. Brandon Shea and Bruce Gibson, each of these guys through Patreon has chosen to support Literary Treks, but they're also supporting the network because we are a listener-supported network, and we can't make any of this happen without our listeners and their help. Uh, it just It's too much. It's too big. Trek FM has become too big for any one of us to be able to afford to do on our own. So go to patreon.com slash trek.fm and you can see how you can help bring all of this content to each week. Obviously, it's a big year for us with the 50th anniversary and we want to continue to make sure that we're giving you the best quality content with the least amount of interruption. We, we don't want ads or anything like that. And for that to happen, we need your help. We want you to be part of the team, so go to patreon.com slash trek.fm and see our goals that we're trying to reach and all the perks that we have for you. Dan, when you're not trying to figure out how you're going to get out of the fire swamp and away from all the L-O-U-S's, where can we find you? (laughs) Nice. Um, Matthew, great reference. That was excellent. Thanks. Well, you can find me uh, on my website, uh, www.treklet.com, where I review Star Trek novels. Uh, and of course, you can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash treklitreviews. And on Twitter, at Kurtrats is my username there, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And I'm also on Instagram. My username there is Kurtrats47. And also on the Babel Conference, our listeners-only group on Facebook, you can find me posting about anything to do with Star Trek and commenting on all the really cool discussions that are happening there. And Matthew, when you're not trying to placate a ship full of diplomats while you've got crew members trapped on a surface below, um, where can we find you? Oh my gosh, it's awful down here. It's so hot and humid, it feels like I'm in Houston. Get me out of here. Uh, God, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me on The Orb with Christopher Jones talking exclusively about Deep Space Nine. I'm also doing the 602 Club here in the network where we talk about a geeky topic each week. It's so much fun. We just pick something random or, or, or you know, we'll be working on something. Like we've been talking some Marvel this year uh, as we work towards... Civil War, we've been talking about some Harry Potter, we started that, we're looking at TV shows, old things, we talked about Dune this year, so check us out, it's a great time uh, over there on the 602 Club, and then my friend John and I started a brand new podcast called Aggressive Negotiations, we are on the Nerd Party Network, so you can check us all out at thenerdparty.com, and we also are on Twitter at the Jedi Masters. well, thank you so much for joining us and until next time live long and read on you call that light reading to each his own number one